In the summer of 1784, Thomas Jefferson traveled to Paris as Minister of the United States to France and lived there for five years. During this time, he made a series of excursions uh, with Pierre Cabanis, a philosopher and an influential member of French society. Cabanis acquainted Jefferson not only with the city and its people, but also with the enlightened ideas in French thought. Today's speaker will talk to us about this transformative period in Thomas Jefferson's life. James Thompson studied philosophy as an undergraduate and graduate student at the University of Virginia. And as a grad student, he actually lived on the farm of Thomas Jefferson's eldest daughter, Martha Jefferson Randolph. During his four years there, he began what has been an ongoing investigation into the philosophy of Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Thompson developed an interest in the history of ideas, teaching courses in philosophy, religion, and ethics in Western civilization at Strayer University in Alexandria. He is the author of several books, including Beyond the Veil of Reason, Thomas Jefferson's Early, Early Political Initiatives, which he wrote while a Batten Fellow at the Jefferson Center for International Studies at Monticello, The Birth of Virginia's Aristocracy, and most recently, Thomas Jefferson's Enlightenment, Paris, 1785. So please join me in welcoming James Thompson. Good afternoon. My name is James Thompson. Uh, I'm honored to be here today. I consider the Virginia Historical Society one of the truly great historical and cultural institutions of our country. I would like to thank Dr. Nelson Langford for making this program possible and Mr. Lee Shepard for his kind introduction. I'd also like to thank you, uh, the members of the audience, for joining me today. Um, I'm going to talk about Thomas Jefferson in France. Uh, I would like to point out that my book has 160 museum quality images, so it's as much a, almost as much a picture book as it is a history. And I have some of these uh, same pictures in the program today. My program today has five parts. In part one, I present the thesis of my book and some background information about Thomas Jefferson. In part two, I present background information about the French Enlightenment. In part three, I comment on the idea men who enlightened France. In part four, I comment on the salons where their ideas were discussed and debated. In part five, I comment on the circles in which Jefferson traveled and his migration into the French reform movement. The thesis of my book has two parts. I contend that during his five years in France, Thomas Jefferson transformed from a circumspect political loner into an engaged political activist who waged and won the Second American Revolution in 1800. In the second part of my thesis, I contend that Jefferson did this by digesting the French concept of progress and becoming a progressive. What do I mean when I say the author of the Declaration of Independence was a political loner? Jefferson held a variety of heterodox views that could have harmed his personal relationships and his access to political power. Because he understood this, he was careful to keep these views to himself. What were they? Jefferson was a non-believer. He was guided by reason, not faith. Jefferson eschewed the concept of rights by nature, surprisingly, because he was trained to argue cases in the common law, not to speculate in philosophy. After declaring independence, Jefferson's self-appointed mission was to dismantle Virginia's hereditary hierarchy, which he undertook to do first in his plan for his state's new government, then as a legislator in the first Virginia assembly, and then as a member of the Committee of Revisers. 
This picture, incidentally, was painted by Howard Pyle in 1901. Our image of Jefferson in France forms around reports provided by a few distinguished and admiring authors. I'm sure many of you have read these books. Uh, Gilbert Chenard, The Three French Friends of Jefferson, appeared in 1927. Marie Kimball, Jefferson in the, the Scene of Europe, 1784-1789, appeared in 1950. Dumas Malone's Thomas Jefferson and the Rights of Man in 1951. Howard Rice in Thomas Jefferson's Paris, a terrific uh, picture book, appeared in 1975. George Green Shackelford uh, in Thomas Jefferson's Travels in Europe, another lovely book, was printed in 1995. And William Howard Adams, the Jefferson years of, or the Paris years of Thomas Jefferson appeared in 1997. They all, uh, they all have all uh, written enjoyable, informative accounts of uh, Jefferson in France, and not surprisingly, they present Jefferson as a star performing on a European stage. They focus on, the, on what the star did, not what was happening on the stage behind him. I'm gonna break ranks today and reverse the lens. I'm going to place France in the foreground of the picture, and I'm going to look at Jefferson through the changing social optic of his enlightened hosts. Bear in mind that Franklin had been, Benjamin Franklin, had been in England for 20 years before he arrived in France in December of 1776, and had an international network of acquaintances and admirers. By the time Jefferson arrived in France in August of 1784, Franklin was intimately familiar with the agents of the French Enlightenment and the reform movement they were orchestrating. Jefferson was not. As France's cognoscenti shared their ideas with Jefferson, I contend he changed. During the 50 years prior to Jefferson's arrival, France's brightest and most daring men Let me go back to that in a second. During the uh, 50 years prior to Jefferson's arrival, France's brightest and most daring men had waged a series of intellectual revolutions. They revolutionized their natural sciences. They revolutionized the science of government. They invented a new science of man and morality. They revolutionized their arts and letters, and they revolutionized their relationship to God and the church. When Jefferson arrived, a new kind of revolution was getting underway. Between 1784 and 1788, the intellectual revolutions of the mid-18th century were passing through a reform movement on the way to a political revolution. In the light of knowledge, what had been bad had become insufferable. The monarchy was on the verge of bankruptcy, the economy was stagnant, corruption was rampant, there was no advancement for France's aspiring petty bourgeoisie, and 23 million French peasants lived in the countryside on the edge of starvation. I think that Jefferson became aware of these things during day-to-day -day interactions with his reform-minded acquaintances. In my book, I conduct these conversations through Pierre Cabany, who knew and befriended Jefferson. This is a picture of Cabany in his later years. Pierre Cabany was arguably the best informed man in France. He was a scientist trained in medicine and physiology in the vitalist school of Montpelier. He was a philosopher in the schools of Torgot, Condorcet, and Helvetius. He was a Salonier and companion to Madame de Helvetius and Benjamin Franklin, whom he called Papa. He was a progressive reformer who, like Turgot and Condorcet, believed that society could be perfected through the application of knowledge. And he was a Freemason and a member of Benjamin Franklin's lodge. 
When Jefferson arrived, French progressives, with encouragement from Benjamin Franklin, were focused on reforming their society and government. Their objective was to replace France's backward, bankrupt monarchy with a constitutional government based on a Bill of Rights. I contend that during his first years in France, Jefferson became familiar with the ideas that propelled the enlightenment of France and the men who framed them. And I'm also going to notice how these men connected with each other, what they did with their ideas, and where Jefferson fit into their business. The Enlightenment in France gained momentum after Voltaire returned from a three-year self-imposed exile to England, which took place between 1726 and 1729. Voltaire energized it in a 1934 publication entitled Letters Philosophique. In this book, he commented on English science and philosophy, and he praised Bacon, Locke, and Newton. Voltaire's comments precipitated a sea change in French science, which became increasingly Newtonian, and French philosophy, which became increasingly interested in John Locke's materialist theory of mind. Voltaire became the center of an intellectual network that reshaped French society and thought. This picture is called The Dinner of the Philosophers, it is described as a conversation piece. It was painted by Jean Huber in 17, around 1772. This man here is Huber. Um, pictured are, this is uh, Father Adams, who was Jefferson, uh, Voltaire's chess partner. Uh, next to him is D'Alembert. Uh, next to him is Laharpe, Voltaire in the center with the arrow. Uh, beside Jean Huber, you can see the top of Sophie de Hodito's head here, if you can make that out. Um, her companion is the poet Saint Lambert. Next to him, Diderot, uh, Martel, and this is thought to be Condorcet. By way of context, Grimm was the lover of Madame de Hodito's sister-in-law, Madame d'Epinay. De Lambert, Voltaire, and Marmontel contributed articles to Diderot's encyclopedia. In my opinion, the most influential contemporaries of Voltaire's were Diderot, Rousseau, Turgot, Helvetius, Condorcet, and Franklin. I'm going to make a couple comments on them now. Diderot inspired revolutions in French arts and letters and in the way France's intelligentsia viewed God and the church. He said that, quote, an encyclopedia should encompass not only the fields already covered by the academies, but each and every branch of human knowledge. To accomplish this, Diderot wrote hundreds of articles himself and recruited dozens of France's most brilliant men to write hundreds more. Among these were Rousseau and Torgot. Everyone was to benefit from their insights. Rousseau was an advocate for social equality. His reputation rested on a back-to-nature philosophy in which he characterized man as the noble savage who corrupted and enslaved himself by joining society. He later revised his position by claiming that society rests on a social contract which empowers the general will of the people. Society's problems, Rousseau claimed, would be solved as the people implemented their general will. France's underclasses, led by knots of frustrated, petty bourgeoisie lawyers, agreed. In France's, in Rousseau's social theory, equality and fraternity, not science and knowledge, were the keys to achieving the common good. 
In Discourse on the Origin and Foundation of Inequality, which he published in 1775, Rousseau opened his comment for social, his argument for social equality with the Jeffersonian claim that, quote, the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. In Rousseau's Back to Nature Social Theology, quote, men are free, but everywhere in chains. He traced these chains to medieval feudalism, which perpetuated uh, an unnatural caste system. Prying loose this dead hand of the past was a major concern of economists throughout Europe in the late 18th century. Similar concerns inspired Jefferson's other rebellion against Virginia's pseudo-aristocracy in the mid-1770s. This is a picture of Turgot. Turgot framed the idea that society is infinitely perfectible. He prepared uh, to become a priest originally, but chose in the end to serve humanity as an agent of the government. In 1761, he became intendant of the administrative district of Limoges, which was one of the poorest regions of France. During 13 years of service there, he applied physiocratic principles to stimulate economic activity and to create wealth. He achieved enough success that in 1774, the king appointed him controller general of France. As France's chief financial officer, Torgot implemented a physiocratic program to reestablish the natural economic order. He aimed to do this by removing regulations and taxes that prevented the free movement of goods to French markets. Torgot is remembered today for his own revolutionary idea. He argued that human society is progressive. By applying knowledge to overcome its problems, society advances from the more primitive to the more refined. Torgot believed that over time, this process would lead society ever closer to a state of perfection. When Jefferson arrived, the best men in France, the men and women in France, shared this view of society and history. They were, in other words, progressives. This is uh, Claude Helvetius, husband of Madame Helvetius. Helvetius pioneered a new science of man and morality. He based it on the materialist theory of mind, which first appeared in John Locke's essay concerning human understanding in 1689. Helvetius agreed with Locke that physical sensitivity is the causal source of all mental activity. He, he went on to say that capacities to learn and manipulate ideas are products of external sensations and that Intelligence is not a natural aptitude, but rather determined by personal experience. Even more controversial were his claims that the fundamental law of human behavior is the search for pleasurable sensations, and that the standard for right behavior is the good that an act produces in the community. David Hume characterized this idea as utility Adam Smith, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and their followers all embraced Helvetius's utilitarian theory. By making pleasure-seeking fundamental to the understanding of right behavior, Helvetius made it an essential component of social reform. French progressives during Jefferson's time in France accepted that training the people to find pleasure in socially constructive actions was a vital part of perfecting their society. Condorcet crystallized progress into a law of nature. Condorcet, the Marquis de Condorcet, was Turgot's protege. Like Turgot, Condorcet believed that the ever-expanding library of human knowledge contains remedies for all ills that afflict mankind. His doctrine of progress, in his doctrine of progress, Condorcet asserted that as men resolve society's afflictions, society will progress toward a state of ever-increasing perfection. Condorcet's enlightened principle confirmed that 
Diderot and Rousseau's intellectual revolutions were beneficial to man and society. Benjamin Franklin. I've already noted that Benjamin Franklin was a celebrity in France. Turgot praised him, saying, he sees the lightning from the sky and the scepter from tyrants. Franklin persuaded France's reform-minded cognoscenti that America's new republic was the ultimate destination in the march of human progress. Moving on to the salon part of my talk, the salons of Paris were places where the enlightened ideas of these men, uh, these men framed, were discussed and debated. There were four celebrated hostesses during the golden age of salons, which was in the 1750 to 1780 period. The first, Madame Joffrin, Marquesa du Defant, Madame de Graffney, and Julie de Lespinasa. Some of you have probably seen this picture. Uh, this is another conversation piece. I put it in today to show, uh, to highlight the idea that the uh, salons were a reinforcing network that made the golden age uh, of salons memorable. The best and the brightest people of Paris and France were all connected. The arrows above, uh, the heads show first uh, from left to right Rousseau, Voltaire, Helvetius, Diderot, and Torgot. The circles highlight the leading hostesses, Madame de Graffney, Madame Lespinasa, Duchess d'Anville, who was a personal friend of Thomas Jefferson's, Madame Joffrin, and Madame de Hodito, who was also a friend of Jefferson's. This era ended in 1780. In her book, The Women of the French Salons, Amelia Gere Mason observes the most remarkable period of the literary salons closed with the death of Madame du Defend in 1780. Madame Joffrin had been dead three years, Mademoiselle de Lespinasse four. Some of the most noted of the philosophers and men of letters were also gone. Others were past the age of forming fresh ties. When Jefferson arrived, notable salons were led by Madame Helvetius, Madame de Hodito, and Duchess Donville. Madame Helvetius was the widow of Claude Helvetius. Madame de Hodito was Jean-Jacques Rousseau's former flame, and uh, Duchess Donville was the mother of the Duc de la Rochefoucauld who was a very close friend of Jefferson's in his last years in France. Each hostess, I don't know whether you can read this, but each hostess had followed her own theme. Madame Helvetius followed on her husband's path by promoting progress through the advancement of scientific knowledge. Madame de Hodito followed on Rousseau's path by promoting progress through social reform and public education. Duchess Donville followed the noblesse oblige of her lofty station by seeking to improve life on her family's estates and beyond through economic reform and agricultural modernization. Now these look a little confusing, but I'm not going to expect you to remember everybody's name. Um, the center is a picture of uh, Duchess Donville and uh, it hangs in her home, uh, the uh, Chateau La Roche-Gaillon in uh, 40 miles up downstream from Paris. Duchess Donville's economic salon was a forum for economists and physiocrats, technocrats, agriculturalists, and members of the enlightened gentry. Uh, I'm gonna build the, my comment around Francois Quesnay who had been Louis XV's physician and advised him on health and other matters, such as his multiplying financial difficulties. 
Quesnay, let's see here. Well, he's up in the, in the right. Quesnay famously crystallized these problems saying, poor peasant, poor kingdom, poor kingdom, poor king. In the course of their conversations, Quesnay developed a diagram so the king could see how wealth is created and distributed. Quesnay argued that markets should be open and trade of corn should be unrestricted. His protege was Dupont de Nemours. Dupont invented the name physiocrat, which uh, is attached to Quesnay's school of thinking. And uh, he also uh, measured the, developed a technique of uh, an analytical method for measuring the success of Quesnay's physiocratic policies as intendant of Limousine, and again as controller general of France, Turgot followed Quesnay's theory. As Turgot's personal secretary, Dupont collected and analyzed uh, and quantified uh, the benefit of the forms that Turgot proposed. I'd also add that Dupont is probably the man who formulated the questions that Jefferson responded to that now appear in his notes in Virginia. Notes on Virginia. Madame de Hodoto's political salon was known as a gathering place for Americanistas. This trace to her friendship with Michael Guglielmi Jean de Crivecourt, this man here, who had been the, uh, who was the son of one of her old friends. Crevecourt returned to France in 1781 after nearly 30 years living in America. Madame welcomed him to her salon and presented him to members of her circle, including the Duc de la Rochefoucauld and his cousin, Lioncourt, de Lambert, and to Benjamin Franklin. French cognoscente admired Crevecourt as a valuable source of information about America, uh, Jefferson or uh, Franklin and later Jefferson enjoyed similar celebrity. Crevecourt's maps, uh, Crevecourt helped shape uh, their view of America as a wilderness utopia. Crevecourt's maps fascinated King uh, Louis XVI, who, among other things, was an amateur cartographer. The king's esteem for Crevecourt's work led his, to his appointment as French consul for New York in 1784. This is a more flattering picture of Madame Helvetius. Uh, she was the uh, niece of Madame de Graffney, the great hostess. Torgot, uh, who uh, attended uh, the aunt's salons, is said to have proposed marriage twice to Minette uh, Helvetius. Regarding Madame Helvetius's science salon, Turgot seems to have introduced Cabanis to Madame early in 1778, a few months after Cabanis commenced his medical studies. By the summer of that year, Cabanis had moved his residence to the pavilion in the garden of her Autiel estate. Cabanis' housemate, Abbe Martin Laroche, later became the, executor, the literary executor and editor of the papers uh, of Madame Helvetius's husband, and a source of invaluable information for Cabanis. Turgot introduced Franklin to La Notre Dame d'Autil shortly after Cabanis settled in. Some of you have probably seen the uh, John Adams series that uh, was on uh, public uh, television a few years ago. Uh, it portrays the visit that uh, Abigail Adams paid to Madame Helvetius's salon. Uh, I've looked at that and I'm fascinated by it. Jefferson doesn't seem to have been present at that event, which took place in late August of 1784. Uh, the uh, series focuses on Madame's idiosyncratic personality and the peculiarity of her friends. What I find uh, interesting about Abigail's uncomplimentary account of the affair, and if you remember it, if you read it, um, 
is the haphazard way that Franklin introduced uh, his uh, colleague's wife to the great hostess. Madam was completely surprised to find that Franklin had brought a guest. And uh, this appears, uh, I think that Franklin probably treated Jefferson with the same ambivalence, leaving it more or less to Jefferson himself to find his way into French society. Jefferson went to France to replace Franklin when the village sage returned home. Jefferson appears to have used the interim period. Franklin finally left in June of 1785. Jefferson appears to have used the interim period to master his diplomatic duties and to create and publish his notes on Virginia. This picture here is a portrait of Franklin that apparently Madame de Hodito, or Madame Helvetius owned and kept in her bedroom. Uh, one other thing I'd like to mention is um, the New World Order, Novo Ordo Seculorum, Novus Ordo Seculorum. Freemasonry was a major force in the Enlightenment of France. The red bordered portraits in this presentation show the men who were Masons. I think half of Jefferson's acquaintances were probably Freemasons. By 1770, members of every literary of every literate segment of French society were joining the Brotherhood whose creed of benevolence, virtue, and self-improvement placed it at the forefront of France's reform movement. The Lodge of the Nine Sisters uh, is one of the most famous and celebrated lodges in France. Madame Helvetius helped to found it the year Jefferson arrived in France in 1776. Franklin became its venerated master in 1778. During his two years in this post, Franklin initiated Voltaire and Cabanis to the Brotherhood. William Short, also affiliated, this is Jefferson's secretary, also affiliated with this lodge. During his six months in Paris, Jefferson apparently concentrated on the business of being a diplomat. This is kind of an interesting slide. It's a, uh, a painting by a man named Massenet, which is in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. You can see it. I've doctored it. I suppose I'll be sued by somebody. But um, uh, this is, um, you'll recognize the uh, Stanley Arthur's portrait of Thomas Jefferson, which is in this museum. And uh, this is William Short, which is uh, a portrait by Charles Wilson Peale, that's in the, um, uh, maybe it's Rembrandt Peel in the muse art museum at William and Mary. When not engaged in diplomacy, Jefferson was busy transforming his notes on Virginia into a printable manuscript. Uh, his notes on Virginia are kind of a mysterious uh, document. Uh, he describes them in his autobiography in these words. Um, when he arrived in France, these memoranda were on loose papers bundled without order and filled with duplication. They were not a manuscript, in other words. It's not surprising that the project uh, of transforming these bundles of pages into a book took nine months to complete, and it would have probably taken far longer had Jefferson's kinsman, uh, William Short was the cousin of his deceased wife, uh, if William Short had not been there to help him. So this is another doctored uh, picture. Uh, it's by a man named uh, Jerome Leon Ferris. Uh, beneath Jefferson's head is uh, the, the uh, portrait of um, John Paul Jones, but I'm taking liberties with it today. On uh, 7 July 1785, Jefferson replaced Franklin as American ambassador to the court of Louis XVI of France. I believe it was after his elevation that Jefferson began to circulate in Parisian society. I'm sorry I didn't have more room uh, for this map, but uh, this is a terrific uh, reproduction. And you can blow this up to uh, a huge 
size and look at the scripts on the streets, I've circled three locations. This, if I can get back there, this circle is some of you, or maybe most of you know that Jefferson sent his daughter to a, a boarding school in Paris, and this is where the boarding school was. Uh, somewhere on this street, I'm not ex sure exactly where, but somewhere on this street was where Lafayette's uh, townhouse was. This block here was the chateau, the hotel of the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, and this building here is the Hotel de Moneys, which is where Condorcet lived. Jefferson spent quite a bit of time visiting with La Rochefoucauld in his quarters and his mother there at that point. Uh, by the winter of 1786, he had settled into a circle of progressive reformers sustained by the Duc de La Rochefoucauld. This continued to be the center of Jefferson's intellectual life through the remainder of his time in Paris. The group consisted of Louis Alexander, the Duc de la Rochefoucauld. In 1777, the Duke penned the first French translation of the Declaration of Independence. In 1783, under the watchful eye of his friend Franklin, he translated the constitutions of the 13 American states and published them with the Declaration of Independence in a book called Constitutions of the 13 United States of America. Like Franklin, the Duke was a Freemason. The second member of the group was the Marquis de, de Condorcet. During Jefferson's time in France, the Marquis was considered her greatest philosopher. Uh, at that time, he held the posts of Inspector General of the Mint, and he was the Perpetual Secretary of the Royal Academy of Sciences. He was also a member of the French Academy, whose members were literary exemplars. He was affiliated with the La Logue de Contract de uh, Society, which was also uh, the Duke's Lodge. The third member of this circle, of the inner circle was Lafayette. Like other members of the group, Lafayette was a dedicated opponent to African slavery and an energetic Freemason. These men were the were center, center forces in the reform movement, and one of their efforts was in uh, a society, the society, uh, the Friends of the Blacks, interestingly. Condorcet introduced him to the introduced uh, Lafayette to the Duke soon after Lafayette returned from America in the winter of 1785. Jefferson had co corresponded with Lafayette during his second term as governor of Virginia, but he did not meet Washington's trusted lieutenant until Lafayette returned to Paris from America. I wish I had more time to talk about uh, these fascinating women Although the American ambassador was a welcome guest at the gatherings of the best and brightest men in Paris, he seems to have preferred traveling on his own path. The time he had after his diplomatic engagements and his interactions with the Duke's circle of reformers, he seemed to have spent in the company of a few distinguished women. These were Angelica Schuyler Church, this woman here up on the right top. Uh, Angelica Church was the wife of wealthy, she was the daughter of Philip Schuyler of upstate New York. She was the wife of wealthy British parliamentarian John Barker Church and the sister of Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, wife of Alexander Hamilton. Anne Willem Bingham is uh, in the center. She was the daughter of Thomas Willing, later the first president of the Bank of the United States, and she was said to be the most beautiful woman of her age. Fascinating picture of her. Comte Comtesse de Tess was the aunt of Lafayette's wife, uh, 
Madame de Brihan was the sister-in-law of the uh, scandalous French ambassador to America, Count de Mostier, who uh, traveled with uh, his sister-in-law and uh, offense succeeded, it seems, in offending most uh, proper Americans of the day. Maria Cosway was the wife of Richard Cosway and the recipient of Jefferson's famous Head and Hearts letter. And Madame Necker, over here, the far right, was the wife of financier Jacques Necker and hostess of her own small salon. Close friends of Jefferson's played prominent roles in the next phase of the French reform movement, uh, which uh, begins in uh, the fall of 1786, uh, when Viscount de Cologne concluded that the only alternative to bankruptcy for the French government was to levy new taxes. The best way to do this, he surmised, would be to summon an assembly of notables. Cologne advised the king that these privileged individuals would consent to new levies, even though for the first time they would have to share in uh, the payment, uh, because otherwise they risked losing their privileged status. The king followed the minister, his minister's advice, and in late December 1786, he summoned a meeting of 144 notables. Jefferson looked on as La Rochefoucauld, Chastelux, and Lafayette were sworn in. Because of the corruption that plagued the existing system and the profligacy of the queen, the meeting did not go well for the king. The notables, the assembly ended when the notables refused to authorize new taxes. The pot simmered for several months after that. On 25 August 1788, the farmers general who collected and the taxes and paid the uh, king's debts suspended repayments of the government's debt. On, 17, on 24 January 1789, France's regional parliaments refused to authorize new taxes, and having no alternative, the king summoned an estates general for the first time in 191 years, I think, <laughs> which shows how desperate he was. Jefferson attended the opening session on 5 May and watched several of his friends He watched several of his friends take their seats. If you look at this picture, this is at Versailles, by the way. If you go into Versailles, there's a room at the top of the stairs, and you can see it. Fascinating, I think it's as big as the wall. Um, I've marked out that uh, this, is, this is the king sitting up here, kind of out of reach. This is Necker, who was uh, orchestrating, uh, managing the finances of the kingdom. This is the uh, MC of the program. Uh, here over on the right, are the, uh, not uh, the uh, notables, this is where the aristocrats sat, and you can see that Lafayette, Condorcet, and La Rochefoucauld were sitting there behind them, blocked by their portraits. Uh, you can see Jefferson, who was sitting in the audience up there. Um, then down here in the front, these were the commons, and uh, sitting Jefferson's friends among the commons included Volney, who was one of Madame de Helvetius's um, part of her entourage, de Stutt de Tracy, also part of her entourage, and de Pont de Nemours. And behind them is Mirabeau, who became the leader of the First National Assembly a few months later, a few weeks later. The refusal of the Third Estate to meet and vote separately precipitated an immediate crisis. This crisis was resolved on 10 June when the Commons declared itself a National Assembly. When members from the first two orders joined them, the Estates General dissolved and France, in effect, had a new government. The first business of the new government was to write and approve a constitution. 
by general agreement, this document would be based on a Bill of Rights that would enumerate the rights of the French people. While um, Jefferson uh, went on to prepare, uh, well, Jefferson, Lafayette asked Jefferson to review drafts that he prepared to submit uh, for a, uh, uh, the review of the assembly, a Bill of Rights that uh, Jefferson was going to fine tune. Jefferson went on to prepare a, a charter of rights and sent it to the king outside of that channel. While he was doing this, he received a copy of the newly ratified Constitution of the United States of America, to which he objected on the grounds that it did not, did not have a Bill of Rights. The opening shots of the French Revolution occurred on 14 July, just a few weeks uh, after this assembly sat, when an, a hungry, angry mob seized the Bastille and murdered its commandant. On this fateful day, there's a great account, on this fateful day, Louis XVI, who was in Versailles, wrote this single word in his diary, three words, July 14th, nothing. That night, the king was roused from his sleep by the Grand Master of the Wardrobe, Duke de la Rochefoucauld Lioncourt, Duke de la Rochefoucauld Danville's cousin. What is it, the king asked. The Bastille has fallen, the, ding, the duke replied. But is it, is it a revolt, the king demanded. No, sire, the duke answered. It is a revolution. On August 25, 1789, Lafayette arranged for Jefferson to host an emergency meeting so eight key members of the National Assembly could settle a critical disagreement over the role of the monarch in France's new government. Of the eight men who attended this meeting, four shared the fraternal bond of Freemasonry. These were Lafayette himself, uh, Duport, Barnave, and Lemeth. Jefferson claims, claimed to have been a silent witness to the negotiations which continued for six hours. The assembly subsequently approved a suspensive veto which allowed the king only to delay implementation of new laws. On September 17th at Hotel de Langeac, Jefferson hosted a farewell dinner for his most intimate friends. There in attendance were the Duke de la Rochefoucauld, Lafayette, Condorcet and Jefferson himself. And then on 26 September, he set sail for home from Har. He took with him an unwavering admiration for the French efforts to reform their government and their society, and a conviction that progress depended on preserving the American Republic. And that was the essence of his transformation in France. So I think I have a few minutes. Uh, if anyone has a question, I've gone through a lot of information. Uh, I wish I had more time to discuss in detail, but I'd be happy to answer questions. Um, if you'll raise your hand, we'll have uh, a microphone brought to you. Okay. Yes. Thank you for your lecture, Mr. Thompson. I am a board member of the Thomas Jefferson Heritage Society. Yes. And a 1951 graduate of the University of Virginia. As you know, Thomas Jefferson was born in 1743. So in 1788, he was 45 years old. Would you like to comment on any relationship that, that Thomas Jefferson may have had with Sally Hemings? <laughs> Who? Um, I have a kind of a different take on this, so I'm going to answer it this way, that uh, there's been a lot of, um, about uh, 25 years ago, this became a focal point in discussions of Thomas Jefferson. And um, I uh, don't have a fixed, it, it, this isn't really relevant to my conversation about <laughs> Jefferson, but I think that it's time for a new conversation about Thomas Jefferson to, for, to form around the man that um, came back from France and uh, waged the 
second American Revolution. Uh, whether Jefferson had a relationship with uh, Sally Hemings, uh, it, it seems plausible, but so far as I can see, there's no concrete evidence. So that's about all I have to say about that. Along those lines, <clears throat> along those lines, how did Jefferson's uh, view about slavery, uh, his relationship, you spoke of his relationship with Lafayette, but how did his views about slavery evolve and change during this period? Well, he was in a very awkward situation when he went to France. He was, I think he went to France to start his life again. His wife had died and he, his world had collapsed. He made four, he was invited to go to France four times. He finally departed uh, in uh, June of 1774. And his purpose was to join the society of, uh, the Enlightened Society of the Marquis de Chastelux. When he got there, uh, he discovered by stages that the people that he wanted to be close to were arch anti-slavery advocates. He didn't say much about that. I think that uh, he, in his notes in Virginia, he had a long passage. I think he wrote that by himself in France after November, between November and April 1785 before he actually entered and began circulating in society. So he had the book published before he discovered that his friends were arch opponents of slavery. And then I think he basically kept it to himself. Other than that, I'm not sure. I, I don't think that he, he tried in many instances to solve the problem of slavery to a certain extent. And at the end, I th didn't he say, this is all, we've done all the good we can. And I, I think he just passed on to the next issue. So I don't have any definitive comments about his view, final views on slavery, unfortunately. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is about the Louisiana Territory Purchase. Uh, you mentioned that Jefferson was in French th four times. And uh -huh. did uh, one of those times he... Well, it's a, the, the only real connection between uh, the Louisiana Purchase and Jefferson in France, direct, is that the man that signed the uh, agreement for the French was the same man that sent Jefferson the questions to answer in 1780, Mar Marbois, Barbet Marbois, who was a consul both times. And um, I guess... Uh, be right to say that Jefferson saw this large opportunity, and but that wasn't something that was a uh, topical during his period in France. That was when he was president of the United States. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm interested in the uh, mechanics of the notes on Virginia. Someone in France sent him an outline or a series of questions. Did he circulate all of those or did he circulate just portions to people in the colony of Virginia that he thought would know about the qu uh, questions? Well, I had the pleasure of seeing an original copy upstairs before uh, the talk. And um, I think it's a very interesting subject. The um, he started working on these in, in uh, the middle of 1780 when he received, shortly after he received the 23 questions from ultimately, originally from Marbois. And he sent a response to Marbois. I can't remember if it was at the, I think it was in the fall of 1781. It might have been in the fall of 1780. But he continued collecting information. Uh, about these 23 questions for the next two and a half years. And when he came to France, I was always under the impression that he had a book ready to print. And he, does, he makes it sound that way because he's communicated how he tried to find uh, Charles Thompson on his way to uh, catch his boat for France and that he decided not to print it in, in Philadelphia but he would print it in France, but the fact of the matter is, if you look at it, I think it's the fact, he says that he had a 
bundle of loose leaf pages that had no order and were full of duplications. So in reality, I think what happened was that he, he took this bundle uh, and organized it according to the 1323 questions, and he did that in France. And he took him six to nine months to organize all of that. And as I was explaining earlier, you can go online to the Massachusetts Historical Society, and they have the document. I think they have the one of the original galley proofs to this book. And it has all of his uh, inner linings and changes. It's got uh, flap over tabs where he added new stuff. And this was him revising his notes, which he then, he had to transcribe those. So those were transcribed probably in the winter of 1785. And that transcription was given to the printer sometime at the end of the winter, early spring. And that was produced into 200 original copies. And those have been distributed out. There's information. Uh, I may put out a paper on that. Uh, someone, maybe a, maybe a historian at the Historical Society here, traced where all those 200 copies went. 170 of them are pretty much defined. 30 of them are missing altogether. But after he printed those books and he passed them out, he gave a copy, one copy to Morellet, Abbe Morellet, who printed a French translation, which Jefferson didn't like. And then it was pirated a few times, and he finally had it printed in 1787 in England by John uh, Stockdale. And that's what most people see now. They buy a copy of that transcription. But I don't think he had a book before he arrived in France, which is surprising. Yes. Uh, yes. What what were uh, some of the most important results of Jefferson's Second American Revolution, and um, how do they link back to what he what he learned in France? Well, um, I don't want to uh, pretend that I'm real knowledgeable about his uh, presidency, but uh, he did learn that. To me, the most important thing of what he brought back from France was his commitment. If the picture of Howard Pyle, of him in the, by himself uh, writing the Declaration of Independence. He was a uh, very secretive. I, I talk. I, I think he was like the Wizard of Oz. He was up on up on uh, Monticello Mountain beyond the veil, doing all these things nobody was supposed to know about, pulling the levers. But when he came back from France, he was convicted that. Um, He'd become a progressive. He was inclined to be a progressive before he went to uh, France. But he was a progressive when he came back. And it was he saw it as his responsibility to protect the republic. That's what he'd learned in France. And he joined. He wasn't um, uh, an entirely active candidate. But he did go through the first national election. And he put up with quite a bit of criticism and defended himself uh, in certain instances. But he, he stood for election and won uh, the election against what he perceived to be a, uh, an emerging monarchistic idea that uh, could undermine the uh, republic. I saw something interesting, maybe you've seen this, that Jefferson didn't, he, he didn't attend Washington's, he wasn't there for Washington's first inauguration. And uh, when Washington died, he didn't attend his funeral because he, there's a comment I read, I think it's correct, that uh, he thought that uh, Washington had worried him being a, uh, surrounding himself with uh, monarchists. So, you know, he was a dedicated Republican and uh, a lot of the things that he would have promoted now are considered taboo to talk about, states' rights and whatnot, but what he was, he was always motivated by the, uh, objective of preventing power from pooling in the hands of tyrants. If you look at the Virginia state emblem, it's, uh, the, you know, liberty standing on the dead tyrant. That was his idea. That's what he did. That was why he waged what I call the other his other revolution to dismantle Virginia's aristocracy. And um, I think that's what guided him during his election and the second American Revolution.
Yes. Thank you for your lecture. Uh, it was very informative. My question is, in Jefferson's circle of friends that you've had there on the screen, did any of them lose their life due to the revolution and the guillotine? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's hard for me to understand Jefferson in this regard. You know, during the uh, last year that he was in France, or the last two years that he was in France, he continually, he wrote the same memo to everybody. And the memo was that everything would turn, things were progressing properly, everything would turn out well once they instituted a constitution based on a Bill of Rights. And his main idea, Jefferson's pet idea, was that the privileges of the the upper classes would be eliminated, so they would have the same rights as everyone else. Everyone else would have the same rights they had. And um, but the two men that were in his immediate and his closest friends, as far as I can tell, two of his closest friends were the Duc de la Rochefoucauld and Condorcet. And the Duke was one of the best men. He was a brilliant. He was a progressive. He invested money modernizing agriculture and improving conditions. He was a member of the Friends of the Black. He did all these things that were to promote uh, improvement in the conditions for everyone in France. And he was stoned to death in 1792. Uh, then Condorcet, Condorcet, and so I didn't have time to mention this, but Condorcet was Cabanis' brother-in-law. And Cabanis, what, what happened, poor Condorcet, he was in hiding. He was, he was, all, he was a, a moderate, but he was uh, in favor of terminating the monarchy and creating a constitutional government uh, free of mo monarchical rule. And uh, if you're familiar with the conflicts between the party conflicts uh, after the uh, fall of the monarchy, they devolved into the terror as competition for power between the different groups uh, intensified. And he had to go into hiding because of his, uh, I think he wrote a constitution. I forget exactly what the issue was. And he felt that he couldn't stay. He was in hiding for eight months, and he finally felt that he had to flee because it, it might be uh, harmful to his uh, protector. And he fled. He was captured. He was taken to one of the prisons. He was to be executed in a day or two. And his jailers went into his cell. I have a picture of this in my book. It's really quite interesting. The jailers go into his cell, and there he is, dead from poison. And uh, the word is that Cabanis gave him the poison that he used to kill himself uh, before he was going to have his head shot. The, the very funny thing, life's full of irony, he was finishing his great masterpiece work. And his great masterpiece work included this concept of the doctrine of progress. This is where he defines the doctrine of progress, Jefferson probably never heard that, that there was a doctrine of progress, but uh, that's what he was writing. He's writing this, and he finishes the last line of this uh, paper uh, and then takes the poison. Kind of tragic. Yeah, one more. Please comment on Marie Antoinette and her bread and cake um, comment yeah. and her execution, please. Well, um, I don't think that she ever actually said that but it's too good not to use. <laughs> but she, I think she almost escaped the, the I referred to the, to the um, bad press, that, uh, the, the bad reputation she had. There was a, something called the necklace, the, the diamond necklace affair, are you familiar with that? Where some bishop, uh, all of the three tiers of French economy had, where they were hierarchical with a very small crust of thin crust of wealthy and a mass underneath of impoverished uh, individuals. And this um, bishop purchased 130,000 uh, lira necklace that he thought the queen would like. She didn't ask for it. She didn't really have anything to do it. And he gave it to her. And it was subsequently stolen, I think, and cut up in, and sold separately. But the poor queen had the reputation of being ordering this and having this kind of extravagance surrounding her. And uh, so she was a, a non-entity. She was a, uh, a target for the, under, the, the impoverished underclasses. And I, you know, it's 
somewhat beyond the scope of my conversation, but she was, I think she might have been able to survive if uh, one or two small happenstances hadn't occurred. She might not have had uh, been beheaded, but you can see in the pictures of her, she had aged substantially. One other final point, and that was that you've all heard of Madame Tussaud, the uh, waxworks queen. Well, her, uh, Jefferson visited the uh, Monsieur Courtius's waxworks, which were in the Palais Royal when he was there. He went there and he saw this, uh, these exhibits. And there was a, an assistant to the proprietor of this museum, and her name was Madame Grelli, I forget, it was a German name, it was his niece. And she learned his techniques for recreating wax effigies. And during the revolution, she was commandeered and she had to go to the uh, graveyard or she went into the baskets after the day's beheadings. <laughs> and she retrieved the head of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette and several others. And there, she made their wax faces. And they, you can see them. You can look at it up online. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so uh, anyway, life is full of strangers. Thank you.